Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today's August 3rd, and this is episode 66. Well, just ahead, Bitcoin might have to make nice with a new cop. And Clorox wrestles with a post-pandemic world that is just fine being dirty. And why did banks stop lending? We'll talk to fintech pioneer Scott Sanborn, CEO of Lending Club. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast every day, including by talking to your smart speaker. Turn to your smart speaker, say, hey, Alexa, play the Drill Down podcast. And it'll happen right there in front of you right then. Like magic. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Welcome to the Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. They call me Magic Mike. No, they don't. Uh, That was something else. No, they don't. That was something else. (laughs) Something else entirely. But this is the place where we talk about the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. And we have some news. Thanks to executive producer Isaac Webster. He's got the three most important business news stories of the day. Isaac? Hey, Corey, let's get started with the SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. He says the Securities and Exchange Commission will regulate cryptocurrency markets to the maximum extent possible using using its existing authority. Gensler also calling on Congress to grant the SEC more scope and resources to oversee the crypto sector. Gensler called the asset class rife with, quote, fraud, scams, and abuse. We just, he said, we just don't have enough investor protection in crypto. For context, you may remember back in May, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying that she didn't believe there was adequate regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies. And at the mark, at the, as the market value of the asset class has exploded to more than a trillion dollars, so have the scams, like we've been talking about on the show a few times. Did you know that I'm a crypto influencer? You? Yes. I don't want to say like you're surprised. <laughs> there was a magazine that came out and listed the 100 most important influential people in crypto when I was in the top 10. And so- let Top me just, 10? Why are you surprised by this? Uh, I'm a big shot. Um, I have a podcast uh-huh. and everything. I know you do. I know okay, you so, do. I'm so proud of you. So, uh, yeah, I worked in the crypto world for a little while. <laughs> and, uh, and I had some influence in that world. And this is totally true. The crypto world yeah. is full of scams and frauds. And I, and I think we all welcome uh, someone stepping up and saying, I want to be the cop and I want to I want to govern this world of crypto because it could, uh, by getting rid of the bad actors, we can start to have some legitimacy across the field. But missing from his comments, uh, again, this is talking my book, but no, he said nothing about the ongoing suit against Ripple, my former employer, uh, that the SEC is pursuing, suggesting but not saying explicitly that uh, Ripple had treated XRP as a security. No word on that. Um, uh, disappointing from my standpoint. Um, we'll see if if they continue with that suit, but it looks like they are. Um, and Ripple, of course, is fighting it vociferously. Now, the next story we're going to talk about, Pepsi. Pepsi plans to sell the Tropicana orange juice brand, 
Naked, and other juice brands to a private equity firm, PAI Partners. Now, Pepsi will receive pretex proceeds of $3.3 billion and retain a 39% stake in the new joint venture in a deal valued at roughly $4.5 billion. Now, this uh, first reported in the Wall Street Journal, the paper points out that over the past several years, fruit juice sales have been under pressure as consumers reduce their sugar consumption. And Pepsi had said last year that demand for its orange juice rose during the pandemic, but overall juice sales continue to decline. Uh, at the company and across the industry. Is sugar the new sitting or is sitting the new smoking? Where where are we in the sugar and smoking? I mean, smoking still smoking. I think sugar's a long way off from smoking stuff, but, you know, we buy a lot of orange juice in my household, though. My kids, they just love orange juice, so. Because they love sugar. I'm a big fan of uh, Orange Juice Jones, but maybe I'm dating myself. Orange Juice Jones? It was one of the first artists on Def Jam Records. Uh, Trust me on this. Okay, next story. <laughs> Our next business story. Lumen Technologies plans to sell a swath of its U.S. telecommunications network to Apollo Global for $7.5 billion, including debt. The investment giant will carve out some of Lumen's collection of telephone and broadband infrastructure that covers 6 million residential and business customers across 20 states, mostly in the U.S., Midwest, and Southeast. Lumen's remaining operations will focus on large business clients who generate most of its revenue, as well as home broadband subscribers in 16 states, including Colorado, Florida, and Washington. Interesting. I wonder if this means they're going to spend a lot more now on infrastructure for that company now that they've got new owners who want to kind of spruce up that system. That could be good news for some of the telecom equipment businesses. Yeah, I find this a very interesting story and will touch a lot of people directly. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's look at Clorox. Clorox. Uh, Clorox has been my friend for the past year. CLX shares, they fell 8% today and they've declined 28% over the past 12 months, which I find surprising based on how much I buy from Clorox. Well, people bought a lot of Clorox stuff with the, the onset of the pandemic. Now they're buying less. Clorox reporting earnings uh, for the quarter, reporting a 9% decrease in sales, a 68% decrease in earnings per share. Um, so, uh, and for the year, uh, they had a sales growth of the trailing year. Uh, they had sales growth of 9% and 24% decrease in profits. So there's sort of two important things going on. Here. Rising costs hit these guys in terms of uh, commodity costs, uh, you know, shipping costs. Every, everything got more expensive for them to get their products to market. But also people are just buying fewer cleaning supplies um, in a world where they're just not as worried about COVID as they were a year ago. And you saw that sort of reflected in the stock and the, the fall in revenue and the fall in earnings. Um, uh, it's a different world for Clorox. Here is the CEO of Clorox, Linda Rendell, on their conference call today. Uh, so if you just look at some of the consumption numbers, even though it did decelerate faster than we expected as vaccination rates picked up, uh, at least until we got to the point we are today, um, you still see a very strong two-year stack of growth. So um, in Q4, that was over 20% for our cleaning business. But also, if you look at consumption, that's been up in the range from 25 to 30% versus pre-pandemic levels. So we really are seeing that behavior be sticky with consumers. Of course, we're lapping incredible growth in those businesses and, frankly, demand that we couldn't supply early in the pandemic so what you're seeing is a normalization, but as we said, a significantly higher run rate moving forward. And we expect that to continue. 
Well, we'll see. I mean, there seems to be some cherry picking of the numbers there. I mean, their their health and wellness category had lower shipments of their cleaning and disinfecting products, uh, both in retail and professional channels. Uh, the sales in that segment alone were down 17%. So she can talk about how the run rates are going to be great and change behavior, but the numbers aren't, aren't showing uh, positive things for permanent changes in the way people consume Clorox products and cleaning products in general. All right. Not to put you on the spot, but Uh-oh. is there any chat about how this compares to 2018, 2019? 2019. So some of the numbers were worse than 2019. And hmm. uh, that was pretty interesting. That it, it, Not all of them, but some of them. And I think that that sort of suggests that uh, uh, these changed, it suggests two things. It suggests that maybe the change behaviors aren't changed forever in terms of the amount of cleaning and disinfecting that people were doing during the pandemic. It also mm-hmm. suggests maybe the Clorox has got some internal issues just in terms of getting product to the customers when they want to. They cited some of that when they talked about just difficulty of supply uh, and supply chain um, command. There's definitely more competition now. If you go, you know, that whole microban product that showed up on shelves during the pandemic that does supposedly what Clorox Remember does. Remember when we interviewed the CEO of Flowtech and how they're getting the professional cleaning device? Uh, there you go. Green stuff. There you so go. yeah, there's a lot of people came into the sector at the same time. Yeah. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Marriott. Officially, the name of the company is Marriott International. You know it by many names. Oh, Marriott. I've stayed in many a Marriott. Uh, M-A-R shares fell 2% today, but they've gained 69% in a year. What's going on with Marriott? Well, uh, people are traveling again, and people are staying in hotels again. And uh, they reported uh, earnings for the second quarter. Uh, where their um, revenue per available room fell, uh, again, let's compare it to 2019 levels. It's still 44% below um, what it was in 2019. Um, And uh, U.S. and Canada doing a little bit better, about 40% below, but internationally 56% below. Their occupancy uh, is about 51% for the quarter. So it's getting better and it's getting better every month. You know, if you you do the year-over-year comparisons, if you do the uh, year-over-year-over-year comparisons, the numbers don't look great, but the pace of the room uh, rates, the pace of occupancy seem to be actually getting a lot better kind of month to month and even week to week. That was the picture that uh, the CEO kind of laid out for us. This is uh, Tony Capuano, who is the CEO of Marriott. Well, certainly the fall is going to be fascinating to watch as as uh, more and more schools open for in-person learning, as more and more companies get back to the office. I think the, the data that, that uh, is perhaps most telling from our perspective is some of the, the statistics we shared with you on special corporate bookings. As we mentioned, those bookings rose 23% in June as we compare to May. And then, again, um, it's just the first three and a half weeks of July, but we saw another 27% increase in those first three and a half weeks of July versus the same three and a half weeks in June. And so the, the, the magnitude and the steadiness of the growth in special corporate bookings, I think is quite encouraging. Uh, and then you've heard us talk about this before, this blending of trip purpose continues to be a real and measurable phenomenon. And we think it's good for our business and we think it'll continue well beyond the end of the pandemic. 
with all that said, uh, we will continue to be vigilant as we watch um, the pace of vaccinations around the world, the effectiveness of those vaccinations relative to the Delta variant, and, and uh, monitor the impacts of that on our business. So interesting comments. I know it's kind of a long soundbite, but I just thought it was fascinating to sort of see the, I mean, talk about it, better than 20% growth month over month, even into the month of July, which as we know, of course, just ended. So um, I, I, that was a, some real big momentum for Marion. Yeah, I like the multi-purpose stays. I like that concept. Yeah, I'm assuming I think that's, that's sort of like too. Yeah, take the kids th- along to your sales meeting. Right, right. Uh, very Let's say, for stuff. example, you're going on the East Coast to interview some job candidates, and you also go in a college visit for your teenager. Just you know, hypothetically. Uh, are we going to talk about your trip again? All right, let's move on to the next the, the next stock. <laughs> Where's the love? <gasps> There's lots of love, but the love comes in the form of honesty. Just hard very love. brutal, hard brutal, love. hardcore honesty. I'm so glad you asked. My next stock? <laughs> yeah, Corey, what's your next drill down? Take two interactive, a favorite of ours here on the podcast. That's right. That's right. TTWO shares fell almost 8% today, and they've lost 4% in a year. I also found this surprising. I just naturally assume that things have gone well because of the pandemic as far in terms of share price, but I'm wrong. Well, this is also what have you done for me lately story. So take two, Strauss yeah. Elnick, friend of the pod. Uh, yeah. One of our one of our guests recently, if you haven't listened to Strauss Elnick episode, look back on your podcast yeah, app and you one. can find that Take-Two interview because he was really good, always yeah. is. Um, Strauss Elnick, CEO of Take-Two, uh, warning that there were a couple of games, he wouldn't say which, but that were going to be delayed. It's just uh. taking some, some big games are not going to um, uh, hit the market as soon as they had hoped. They're sticking by their guidance that they had for the quarter, but they're saying that for the year, I should say, but saying that things aren't going to get any better than that, not least of which for the delay in these games. So, you know, interesting that they're they're sort of taking the time to get these games right, which has been their MO, but that uh, doesn't help uh, help them in the, in the near term. Why the delay? Does he talk about that ready. in the soundbite? They're not good huh? enough. They're not ready. Oh, they're well, not no. ready. The games okay. aren't ready. And so okay, gotcha. uh, and, and one of the games might be WWE 2K22. Okay. Which the WWE franchise back it's when it was big. WWF has been, I mean, it's it's really what took Take-Two from being a third-rate game maker 20-plus years ago um, and and put them on the next level. So big deal for them. Also a big deal for them, however, is what's going on at Activision. Mm-hmm. So Activision, uh, as, as we've been talking about offline, off has been going through a major uh, issue um, with problems with their employees and problems with the state of California uh, accusing them of, of running a, a, an unkind workplace uh, that has been a kind of particular to to women and people of color. So Strauss Zelnick was actually asked about these issues of diversity and what it means for a company like Take-Two. You know, oh, uh, lurking out there is a the notion that some people, if they just hate working for Activision Blizzard, maybe they'll just move on over across the street or across the nation and go on to Take-Two. Listen to what Strauss uh, had to say, the CEO of Take-Two, about the importance of diversity for a business like Take-Two. Look, our most important asset here is our people because they create everything that we're able to bring to consumers. Um, you know, we're an asset-like business. Um, we are a business of intellectual property. And our strategy, our stated strategy, has always been to be the most creative, the most innovative, and the most efficient company in the business. Um, diversity is key to our success. We need to have a diverse 
perspective and diverse voices in order to in order to create that quality. So it starts at the top. Our, our board of directors is diverse with respect to gender, race, and skill set. Uh, our management team is is exceedingly diverse from a gender uh, perspective, and our voices as a result are diverse. But we're not stopping there. We're also reaching into the community to create um, a broader, more diverse pool from which we can recruit and our competitors can recruit going forward. So we work together on company-sponsored service projects in the communities in which we operate. We encourage individual volunteerism and giving through our philanthropic and matching donation programs. We support organizations that um, are focused on enhancing diversity. We uh, we uh, increase the candidate pool through scholarships to design students, contributions to organizations providing STEM opportunities to children in underserved communities, and delivering interview training and career counseling to young adults. And this, this crosses genders, but in many instances, we're also focused on young uh, females as well. So we're, we're trying to do the right thing from the top of the company uh, at the board level to the management team, to even creating a pool from which we can recruit uh, a long time into the future. And even so, I'm sure there's much more that we can do. I'm sure there's much more than we can do with that. I thought that was just an interesting notion that this work isn't done. And, you know, as I mentioned, that's very different than what we're hearing about Activision Blizzard, where the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing has sued them, alleging discrimination and sexual harassment against women. So uh, a different approach, at least espoused, is a different approach from uh, Take Two. And, and to be fair, Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision, has made some big changes, not least of which um, the president uh, of Activision, of Blizzard, has left and replaced uh, by two people, including a woman named Jen O'Neill. All right, we're coming up next on the drill down. We're going to look at uh, a fascinating company that really has been taking on the banks and doing the work that banks used to do by actually lending money to customers uh, with an explanation of what's going on in the world of banking and lending club. But first, the drill down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earning season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. Right, welcome to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Scott Sanborn. He's the CEO of Lending Club. Do you, do you say the the in Lending Club or just say no, Lending just Club? just say Lending Club. No so, the. So it's no TLC, it's LC, Lending Club, <laughs> one word, two capitals. Scott, uh, really glad to have you as uh, CEO of Lending Club right down the street from us here in San Francisco. Um, I, I think that I've always thought Lending Club is an interesting business, but it's especially interesting to me right now because of what's going on in the world of banking, particularly post-COVID retail banking uh, kind of collapsing in itself. But let's start maybe with a 100,000-foot view. What does Lending Club do and how do you guys make money? So, we, you know, we started really to use data, use technology to transform the banking business. We started in lending, unsecured lending, you know, the, the single most old-fashioned form of lending, which is, do you want to borrow money? Um, and we uh, were very successful. We became market leader in uh, 
the unsecured lending space, the personal loan space. As it's, and, and so uh, lending, lending to whom to do what with the money? Yeah. So, you know, uh, averages are dangerous, but we, but one of the powers of the model is we operate a, a marketplace and uh, a marketplace that allows all different kinds of loan investors. The funding for the loans comes primarily from loan investors. They include community banks and regional banks. They include really large asset managers. It includes, it includes hedge funds. So broad range of investors fund a very broad range of customers. Uh, so that that's the that's the big story, which is you know people aged eighteen to eighty, FICO scores from six hundred to to eight fifty. We really do serve a very very broad range of people, and we have a because of this uh, mix of funding partners and because of the data that powers our decision making, we have a really good offer for all of them. And what do they do with it? The the primary use case, the majority of people, they use it to pay off existing credit card debt. So. Nearly half of all Americans with credit cards have uh, carry a balance, which means they have a loan and it's not a very good one. It's high rate. It's it's a variable rate. So we have a very compelling experience that says, don't do that. Do this instead. It takes you less than two minutes. There'll be money in your account tomorrow and you'll save you know, three or 400 basis points off of the cost of your credit. So, so that's it's a very powerful offer. Um, and, and the way we make money is we take a fee upon, you know, we identify the borrower, we underwrite them, we issue the loan, we service the loan. Uh, investors who provide capital to fund the loans, they are in the interest, we take a fee. That, uh, that was our model up until February of this year right. when we announced that we acquired a, a digital bank. So Radius now we're, bank, moving, yeah. Yeah, we're moving from just helping people with lending to also helping them with spending and savings. And what that further allows us to do is we're going to hold about 20% of the loans we issue. So we'll still move 80% through the marketplace, but we'll keep 20%. That provides a whole new revenue stream for the business, uh, a really kind of resilient, durable uh, revenue stream. Now, your company has long maintained, and I've had to accept at your word, the company's word, even before you were the CEO, um, that the data that you have helps you evaluate risk better than most credit card lenders, better than most lenders, that you're able to figure out who's really going to pay back these loans and therefore can offer them a little better rate than they might get from an existing credit card company or bank. Yeah, what, I, what I'd say is, look, I think there's a, uh, you got to separate the, the the wheat from the chaff here. There's a lot of people claiming a lot of things. So exactly. Facts you can sink your teeth into. And they'll usually throw in a machine learning or AI yeah. reference exactly. and claim they got that so, going too. I'm not going to bury you in magic words. I'll just give you, you know, basic facts. We've issued 65 billion in in loans, so that's a really big number to three and a half million customers. Just since 2017, we've generated over 150 billion cells of data. Uh, if you just look at research not done by Lending Club, uh, but research done uh, by the Federal Reserve. Um, uh, you see that Lending Club ha has been demonstrated to make credit both more accessible and more affordable. So we are saying yes to a broader range of people. We're reaching customers that the banks aren't reaching, and we are making it uh, available at a lower cost than traditional lending institutions. So those that's that's not my word. That's you know uh, actually several Federal Reserve studies using uh, publicly available data. 
Um, so, so that, you know, that is, uh, that's a uh, simply applying the latest techniques to massive data sets. It's, it's not, it's not magic. It's, it's hard work and it takes time to build up that experience and those results. And, you know, we've been at it. Our first loan was in 2007. So we've been at it a long time. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how much um, uh, that has worked out for you guys. Like I said, I, it, it proves itself out because so many claim to have that secret sauce. Let's let's look at the world of banking where it stands right now. I think um, you know we talk in so many ways how COVID ex- and, and the pandemic accelerated digital transformation across lots of industries and pulled forward. You know whether it's e-commerce or the cybersecurity pulled forward many years of spending into 2020 and 2021, and we are now living in the future in some regards. One of those things that's happened is a big contraction in the number of retail banks out there. And I think that hasn't been looked at a lot. You and I live near each other. And uh, the, the the banks that are right near our, our home have yet to reopen. The ATMs are still there. <laughs> the, the bank itself, you can't go inside. Um, that's these, right. are, these are big banks, B of A, Citibank, whatever, Wells Fargo, all pulling back and on uh, the physical branches. What What are the numbers behind that? So it, you, you are correct, you know, and it's one of the things I've been saying already now for about a, a little over a year ago, we announced the acquisition of a digital bank. And what I said at that time was, uh, it'll take us about a year to get approved, which we hit uh, one month early. And at the time we got approved, I said there couldn't possibly be a better time to start a digital bank than right now. And why? Because we are starting as the recovery begins. Uh, where we are freshly capitalized and we do not have the overhead of thousands of bank branches, all of the staff and the furniture and the rent and the equipment and the overhead. And, you know, we're able to simply, you know, move much more quickly. And and the consumer has now come in this direction. It used to be uh, the number one driver of your choice of a bank was the location of the branch. And it was like a mechanical process, right? right? You know, they would put a branch down, they would know what that could drive for deposits, what that could drive for customers. And the reason was people viewed that as convenience. The location of the branch was what the driver of convenience was. What happened during COVID was all those branches closed and it basically forced people to download the mobile app, right? And to actually, and once they did that, they said, no, this is convenience, right? Banking isn't where I go, banking's what I do. And I should choose my bank based on who's got the actual best mobile experience because that's the ultimate convenience. So that's that acceleration you were talking about is, you know, bank branches have been slowly closing over the years. I think most predictions right now are is that is going to significantly accelerate uh, because consumers have learned, um, you know, what really matters to them. And that's why for us, the bank we acquired is a multi-award winning digital bank. Uh, So their, their member rewards checking experience is a fantastic product uh, that, you know, again, came to us without the branches. Well, I, you know, I was at a banking conference probably two years ago and I won't, uh, it was, I wasn't a reporter then, so I don't want to speak out of school, but I'll just say that this banking executive said that they did a study of their customers and their customers, their millennial customers said they would rather go to the dentist and get a root canal than visit their bank branch. <laughs> and that, and the, and yet the senior executives of this bank were still of the mindset that we need to open more branches to get these young customers. We'll put some coffee shops in the bank branch and that'll solve the problem. doesn't solve the yeah. problem. Yeah. I mean, it's what brought me to lending club in the first place was I really felt like this was the last 
kind of category to be disrupted by technology. You know, travel and retail and all the rest was well underway when I joined Lending Club in 2010. But but banking hadn't yet happened. And, you know, what you're seeing now, you know, both both in the consumer trends we just talked about, but you're, you know, follow the money, right? If you look at the amount of um, venture investment into fintech and you look at a lot of the recent slate of IPOs, I think everybody's realizing this is a very, very massive industry that is ripe for disruption because consumers, frankly, just haven't been that satisfied with their experience. When I joined was just after the great recession where people were pretty mad at the banks and they've yeah. been playing a role in, um, you know, in, in that uh, great recession. And I think, you know, I don't, we, you know, we work with a lot of banks. There's great people at banks trying to do great things, but the industry as a whole has not served the customers well, well and has not sufficiently evolved. Let me ask you, why did banks stop lending to customers? I mean, you see, you saw the, the Square acquisition yesterday, which is really about providing credit to, to consumers in a way that's not, uh, doesn't destroy their, their life and their credit. You, you, say, you see the success of your company, of a firm, of SoFi, of so many other companies that are doing the things that banks used to do. Why did banks stop lending to, the, to people? You know, I think one of the one of the pieces here is the institutions got really, really siloed around their products and didn't organize around their customers. Right. There's talk about it, but not a lot of action. And when everyone's go to market strategy is around their product and not about what the customer needs, you know, you slowly drift away from what people are looking for. And then you build up these these profit centers that frankly are you know, not aligned with a good outcome for your customer. They're aligned with a good outcome for the business. And if your business is not organized around the customer, it's organized around business. That's how you saw the growth of things like overdraft, right? That's how- That's it's how outrageous. It's just outrageous. How, exactly. And that's how credit cards have gotten so massive. Credit cards have fantastic utility, right? They're a really convenient way to pay. But um, why did banks stop lending? Well, credit cards were so profitable. Uh, you can make, and you know, you can make more money off of giving them a credit card than you could off of giving them an installment loan, and that's that's where it went. That's that's the big picture. I think on a, you know, on a more, you know, let's call it street level, corner to corner, you look at the pace of technological change, and while clearly the big J.P. Morgan Chase has no problem investing in technology, innovating, and-, and that, that's, that's about a third of what Jamie Dimon talked about in the last conference call, is investing in technology and care for his customers. Although I had to remind myself, yeah, except overdraft fees. Yeah, exactly. But but look at, you know, you know there are thousands of banks in the country and there's only one JP Morgan Chase. So you think about your regional banks and your community banks, do they have the budgets? Do they have the talent? Do they have what it takes to really innovate in the customer experience and evolve? That's been very, very hard as well. And now you're seeing, you know, you're seeing a lot of players in, in the Valley jump in to fill that space, right? Um, a bank is a service providers picking up pieces of the ecosystem to allow both fintechs, but also banks to expand their, their remit and the products and services they can offer to customers. So you already had a very successful business. Why get Radius? What does Radius allow you to do now that you actually have purchased a, a, a chartered bank and can do the things that banks can do, but you've also got the FDIC regulations to deal with? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we have OCC. Uh, we're an OCC chartered uh, bank. Sorry, not an FDIC. Okay. Uh, but uh, well, we have FDIC insurance, of course, through our deposits. But that's so 
I could talk for a long time about this. I, I, I mentioned, you know, starting with the, the kind of financial side, we get a whole new revenue stream. That's one, right? We can now hold some loans on our balance sheet. And for loans we hold, we earn three times as much as for loans we sell. So pretty much do the exact same thing we were doing before we acquired the bank, but on 20% of the loans earn three times as much. So that, that's one, that's new revenue. The second piece we have is lowered costs. In order to serve big institutional investors, we had to take out warehouse lines, which had a cost associated. We had a, sure. When COVID hit, we had a billion dollars in warehouse lines at an average cost of call it 330 basis points. We now have deposits at a cost of 30 basis points. So that's an, that, you know, annualize that billion dollars at that cost, that's 30 million a year in expenses. Right. Those are gone. We paid banks, uh, we worked with partner banks to issue loans for us. They also earned, call it, in the neighborhood of $30 million a year. Those costs go away. So we both added revenue and eliminated costs. That's on the financial side. That alone is such a clear picture. There's and Then there's the big strategic side, which is you know our customers, we've talked about customer satisfaction. We have NPS scores, net promoter scores as a measure of satisfaction. Our scores like in, in the high 70s to low 80s. Um, our customers love us. They come. They want to do more with us. Over half of them come back within five years to take out another loan. More than 80% of them have said, we want to do more with you. Give us more products and services. So with the addition of the bank, we actually pick up a high engagement product that helps them accomplish their goal. They came to us to find savings, lower their cost of debt. Great. Now we can actually help you with savings and we can help you manage your spending in a way that you know keeps you out of debt. And also back to the data point, collects more data, allows us to identify more opportunities to add value to you. So that's, that's kind of the strategic side. And then on the structural side, uh, I'd add, we have regulatory clarity. There's, you know, uh, a lot of talk comes out of banking about how they're unable to innovate due to the regulatory. Uh, right, overlay. right. You know, I reject that notion. Uh, you know, I think it is possible to innovate uh, and sometimes constraints are what really sparks creativity. I would say for us, knowing who our regulator is and being able to engage with that regulator in our roadmap is actually a real advantage versus um, not actually knowing who to go to to ask for permission and waiting to see you know what the opinion of the you know the panoply of regulators ends up being. So well, I mean, I found the the head of the OCC, at least the last one, uh, really really was concerned about innovation, and uh, it was he happened to be a Silicon Valley guy, uh, which helped. But I, I think that the the banking regulators understand that banking needs to both protect consumers from abuse and help them get what they want. Yeah, and I think banking regulators are rightly looking out outwards today and saying, hey, do we want these institutions in the system where they can be supervised or do we want them outside the system? And, you know, I think inside the system provides the opportunity for, for better oversight. And you've got some real leverage with your business. You did a big restructuring last year. Your headcount's way down uh, and yet your business is bigger. Yeah, that's that's right. We um, again, just prior to COVID, we went through a process of really simplifying our business, resetting our fixed cost base, relooking at all of our vendor contracts, and then COVID hit. So we actually never got to show what you know what does the new cost basis look like when matched with revenue, and that's really what you saw in Q two was you know we we delivered. Um, 
we delivered revenue that was right on top of one of our highest revenue quarters ever, but we were able to deliver record profit because our fixed cost base had been completely reset. A super interesting business. We want to keep an eye on this as this goes forward because you're obviously at a real inflection point and you're seeing the results. Uh, Scott Sanford, uh, Sanborn, thank you very much for your time. We do appreciate it. And I'll, I'll see you in one of our neighborhoods. Yeah, thanks so, for having me. All right, Scott, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Well, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. How much did this company cut back? Uh, it's kind of amazing that they put up a near record quarter with a percentage, a massive percentage fewer employees. We'll tell you just how much smaller the business was by the end of last year compared to the previous year when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Now, I can't say I have a favorite, but on TuneIn, you can select my voice at three times normal speed and make me sound like Alvin or one of the other chipmunks. One of the many features of one of the many platforms we're on. But check us out at any speed and listen to the drill down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I right, mentioned that uh, the slow, much smaller size of the lending club, well, our drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. How much smaller is the staff at the lending club, even as they put up a record quarter? In the first quarter, well, kind of amazing numbers. They went from 1,538 employees to 1,030 employees right before COVID. That's a 49% reduction in the size of the staff. And yet they're putting up, Isaac, record numbers. Wow. Well, sometimes those things go hand in hand. 49%. Usually not. Usually when you cut your staff by 49%, you're not going to put up record uh, revenue numbers. Maybe it might help your earnings, but that it helped both is, a, I think, probably a testament to the leadership of that company and the business model itself. All right, well, you've been listening to The Drill Down. We really do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs>